Welcome to another AIC NSW Conveyancing Podcast. The podcast series brings you the latest in case law, legislative updates and conveyancing practice from a select group of experts in the field. In this episode, Tony Carl, well-known legal author, speaker and former solicitor, discusses the recent update to the standard conveyancing contract with Margaret Collier. Today we're here with Tony Carl, legal commentator, author and educator. Tony is a well-known to AIC New South Wales members and we'll talk today about the 2019 edition of the contract for sale and purchase of land. Welcome Tony. Thanks Margaret. Conveyances have had to cope with nearly annual updates of the standard form of contract over the past five years, including famously one edition which had a currency of some 40 days. What have been the key drivers for change in the latest edition of the contract? Well, there have really been two major drivers for change that prompted the release of the 2019 edition. The um, commencement of the residential off-the-plan reforms, as from 1 December 2019, uh, necessitated a revision of the components relating to strata and subdivision matters generally, and Inevitably, over the last few editions of the contract, there have been developments in electronic conveyancing since the release of the previous edition that necessitated some fine-tuning of the relevant clauses. There was also some helpful guidance from the Australian Taxation Office about how the GST at settlement withholding measure has been working in its first 15 months of operation and some of their suggestions were incorporated into the final form and as is the case with every new addition there were changes to legislation and regulation which were sometimes really cosmetic in nature but still needed to be incorporated into the standard form. Could you give us a bit more detail around the residential off-the-plan law reform? I guess the the first thing to note about this is that it's primarily consumer-driven. So there has been concerns about the freedom that developers have had when selling off the plan, particularly when selling residential strata off the plan, to tailor the contract in a very vendor-friendly fashion. And depending on how the market forces are, the purchases are sometimes disadvantaged. The way that the government has responded to that is with a suite of changes. The um, introduction of a prescribed form of disclosure statement with a number of compulsory inclusions and attachments to that statement designed to give a prospective purchaser much more information than they would have had under the former regime. There's also been some unfortunate developments where deposits have disappeared or have struck insolvency issues and so the reforms give greater protection to deposits in residential off the plan. Rights of rescission are enshrined by implied terms in the conveyancing sale of land regulation. Um, If there are changes which materially prejudice the buyer between what they're promised in the contract and what is actually delivered. Um, Given the complexity of off-the-plan contracts in general, it was thought that it would be appropriate to change the default cooling-off period for residential off-the-plan from five business days to ten business days. And 
they've widened the supervisory jurisdiction of the Supreme Court in relation to vendors rescinding the contract because a target date hasn't been met. We've moved from just focusing on registration of the plan, the so-called sunset date protection, to a sunset event protection, which includes, for example, an occupation certificate not issuing by a particular date. Another reason for changing the contract has been to facilitate electronic contracts. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Well, this suite of changes was actually introduced before the residential off-the-plan changes. So we had in uh, an amendment act which was passed late in 2018, two broad sets of um, reforms. One relating to residential off the plan, which needed the support of a regulation, which took over 12 months to draft to allow for proper industry consultation. And the more immediate changes, which took effect from the 22nd of November 2018, about helping to remove any doubt that contracts dealing with land can be formed can be signed electronically. One area of particular concern in the vendor and purchaser context was whether electronic vendor disclosure was an allowable mode of giving the information that needs to be delivered to purchasers. And to remove any doubt about that, it's now been made clear that where you have an electronic form of contract, you can disclose the relevant Schedule 1 documents electronically. There's also um, some amendments to the key statute of fraud type provisions, so additions to Section 23C and Section 54A of the Conveyancing Act to make it clear that those formalities are not um, invalidated merely because they are performed in an electronic mode. Could we move on to some of the items that you've mentioned previously and fill in a bit more detail, so things like disclosure statements and what has to go in them, deposits, rights of rescission, etc.? Certainly. The disclosure statement is now a form that is available from the Office of the Registrar-General website. It's a reasonably user-friendly form. I think it's fair to say it's more user-friendly than the purchaser declaration that Revenue New South Wales requires everybody to fill out. And it lists the, the key documents that will have to be included if they're applicable. So, for example, as a starting point, you have a copy of the draft strata plan or subdivision plan, which, amongst other things, shows the area of the relevant lots, which shows the detail that you would expect broadly in a registered plan with a couple of exceptions. So, for example, you don't have to include the unit entitlement because that can really only be worked out after the uh, construction has finished and valuations are done. Also, it's necessary to include the form of any Section 88B instrument. You have to include any strata bylaws or the equivalent to strata bylaws in community or part strata schemes. So really it's designed to give much of the detail that is ultimately going to end up forming the title. And one other very problematic area in practice, if there is a schedule of finishes, that is also one of the primary disclosure documents. As far as deposits are concerned, the protection that's given is that there 
needs to be a, a regulated deposit holder. So solicitors, conveyances, real estate agents each have regulatory frameworks and have a trust account regime. The deposit once paid needs to be held presumably all the way through to settlement by one of those regulated entities. And that should prevent, for example, the vendor spending, frittering away or disappearing with the deposit. The rights of rescission are to some extent similar to the familiar contractual rights under Clause 7 of the standard form, but there are a few key differences. For example, the sort of flight and booth type test um, uses language of material prejudice, which is a concept which is new to New South Wales law, but has been adopted in some of the other Australian jurisdictions. The claim for compensation under the ROTP changes is limited to 2% of the price rather than the traditional 5% that's referred to in the standard form. Instead of the president of the Law Society determining any uh, appointment of an arbitrator, fair trading takes on that role. So while there are many similarities, there are some key differences. The contract itself has been amended to add a new clause 32, which makes it clear that if there is any conflict between what the contract says in, for example, clauses 6 and 7, and what the regulation says, the regulation, as you would expect, takes precedence and trumps what's in the printed form of contract. Also, there is a measure to prevent somebody claiming, for example, 2% under the regulation and then another 5% under Clause 7 of the contract. What's happening in inconveniencing with mandates and what's happening also with the onboarding of the second ELNO and what does that mean for conveyances? Well, to borrow from Roy and HG, really too much e-conveyancing is barely enough. The amount of activity which the members are confronted with, never mind the amount of activity that industry bodies like the AIC are dealing with in the e-conveyancing space, is rather frightening. So earlier this month, we saw the notices of death and part transfers become available uh, more widely in an electronic format. Time will tell whether they are going to be mandated to be lodged electronic only or not. The next critical mandating date is the 1st of July 2020 and the Registrar-General is empowered to add to the existing list of mainstream dealings and expand what sorts of um, transactions must be lodged electronically. We've seen the introduction of electronic leases the uptake of electronic leases has been very, very slow, in part because for an e-lease, both the landlord and the tenant need to be represented by a conveyancer or a solicitor, and there are a lot of tenants that are reluctant to go to that expense. So whereas you're looking at something over 95% of transfers being lodged electronically at the moment, fewer than 10% of leases are being lodged electronically. With any mandating regime so far, there have been exceptions to the general rule. They are incorporated in a series of Registrar-General's waivers. The key current waiver is due to expire on the 30th of June. It identifies each of the types of mainstream dealings and points out 
several exceptions in the case of transfer. There are up to nine circumstances where you can choose to lodge in paper or sometimes you have no choice and you have to lodge in paper. So, for example, if a conveyancer were acting on a matter where one of the properties in a chain was in New South Wales and the second one was in the ACT, or where a transaction involved the transfer of a water access licence, those matters can still be done in paper and typically it would be sensible to do them in paper. In fact, if you have ACT conveyancing, it's impossible to do them electronically. The other key problem area that the industry will have to confront is the spectre of interoperability. The introduction of a second electronic lodgement network operator, which does not talk as seamlessly to PEXA as, say, a Telstra mobile phone talks to an Optus mobile phone, is inevitably going to lead to some complexity which didn't exist in the monopoly environment. The Contract for Sale 2019 edition has at least a flag to this complexity in that there is a space on page two of the form for the parties to indicate their preferred ELNO. There's then a substantive provision which says that the parties will use the preferred ELNO for the transaction unless they agree to use a different one. And industry practice will have to emerge over time to how you deal with disputes if one party wants to use Elno number one and another party, for example, a mortgagee, wants to use Elno number two. I can see there being problems with the banks on that, especially if you've got two different banks that want to use different Elnos. The banks have invested considerably in training, in hardware, in cold hard cash in embracing the monopoly provider while it was a monopoly because mandating for banks meant they had to go electronic. How they are going to look at spending a comparable amount to adapt their systems to a second non-interoperable operator is going to be very interesting to watch. Indeed. Just to round off, do you see any possibility of a 2020 contract or 2021? Well, if you're a betting person, you'd have to think that given the rate of issues, uh, there is a, an even money chance, I would expect. One of the priorities that may postpone the release of an even newer edition of the land contract is that the contract for sale of business, the other Law Society REI joint copyright form, has not been updated since 2015. The 2015 were the happy days when there wasn't e-conveyancing at all. We are now in the situation where leases can be prepared electronically and lodged electronically. I understand that transfers of leases are imminent for e-lodgement, and so there is a burning need for the business contract to address the issue of e-conveyancing in relation to grants of new leases and transfers of existing leases. And I expect that will take up a bit of drafting time over the months ahead. If a new, improved, perfect interoperability solution is imposed, then I'm sure that the drafters of the standard form of land contract will rush to embrace that. But Beyond that, we're really in the hands of government. One of the reasons there have been so many new additions to the contract over recent years is that 
governments keep changing revenue laws. The last time we had an addition of the contract, which was driven by um, primarily um, judicial commentary, was the publication of the 1996 edition. Virtually everything since has as either the main focus or at least a partial focus changes to federal taxation law on property or state taxation law on property. So we're at the mercy of government to a large extent. Absolutely. Okay, Tony, thank you very much for your time today. A pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this AIC NSW conveyancing podcast. Thanks to Tony Carl and HWL Ebsworth solicitors. Your responses, ideas and suggestions can be sent to events at aicnsw.com.au. This podcast is a production of Really Sound Productions. I'm Julian Pulvermacher, and I look forward to your company next time. podcast is a guide only. Nothing in this podcast is intended to be legal advice and should not be taken as legal advice. Should you require any further information on any aspect of the podcast, you should refer to AICNSW or a licensed conveyancer.